You're listening to the Broadway Podcast Network. Judy was boring. Hello. Then Judy discovered Jumbacasino.com. It's my little escape. Now Judy's the life of the party. Oh, baby, mama's bringing home the bacon. Whoa, take it easy, Judy. The Chumba life is for everybody. So go to ChumbaCasino.com and play over 100 casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. Voidware prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Judy was boring. Hello. Then Judy discovered ChumbaCasino.com. It's my little escape. Now Judy's the life of the party. Oh, baby. Mama's bringing home the bacon. Whoa. Take it easy, Judy. The Chumba Life is for everybody. So go to ChumbaCasino.com and play over 100 casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. Voidware prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. The heat is on in Saigon. It's another hot summer, Kev. One might say it's 110 in the shade. You get it? Mm, yeah. Yeah, I do, Rob. I do. Mm. And how do you cool off, my friend? Well, I say dress light, and where best to begin lightening your attire than your wallet? Oh, and how would one do that? Simple, Kev. To be one of the cool kids, become one of our Patreon supporters, and help keep us on the air. Head on over to Patreon.com, that's P-A-T-R-E-O-N.com, and search for Behind the Curtain, Broadway's Living Legends, and set a monthly donation. Even a dollar a month helps us. Your contributions help us continue doing what we are doing and bring Bringing the legend stories to your ears. Rob. Yes, Kevin. You aren't wearing any pants. Mm. Hi, I'm Rob Schneider. And I'm Kevin David Thomas. And this is Behind the Curtain, Broadway's Living Legends. Don't forget to follow us on Twitter at Broadway Curtain. And make sure to join our Facebook page at Behind the Curtain, Broadway's Living Legends. And follow us on Instagram at Broadway Curtain Podcast. Plus, you can always listen to our podcasts on Broadway World and Stitcher. Today's guest is one half of a trailblazing team that revolutionized not only the off-Broadway theater scene of the 1970s, but also made history as the only female composer-lyricist team working in that era. That's right. As an actress, though, she appeared in Little Me, the original, 110 in the Shade, and 1776. As a lyricist and book writer, she, along with Nancy Ford, created Now Is the Time for All Good Men, which was just a favorite things recently, uh, The Last Sweet Days of Isaac, Shelter, and the iconic I'm Getting My Act Together and Taking It on the Road. And I know Shelter is one of your favorites as well, so we'll be talking about that, I'm sure. To tell us what it was like to work with such legends as Nancy Ford, Sid Caesar, Joseph Papp, Austin Pendleton, Ward Baker, Ed Kleban, and so many more, here's one of our favorite lyricists and the amazing trailblazer Gretchen Cryer. Hello. Hello. Hi. Yeah. Oh my God. What an intro. I'm well, so happy. What a life. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> we are so happy you're joining us today. Yeah. So, when did you first develop the love of words? Probably when I was about five years old, I started writing plays for, oh. for me and my brother, who was three oh at my. the time. No, no, he was two at the time. I was five and he was two. And uh, I do not know where I got this theater bug because I was out in the middle of the countryside in Indiana. Oh. Whereabouts my, in Indiana? Uh, 40 miles east of Indianapolis in the suburbs of a town called Dunreath, which had a population of 200. Okay. And we were outside small. that town. Yeah. yeah, rather small. What now, in the world did you even think to I know. To, to well, my parents had moved from Indianapolis out into the country because Dad was, at the time, a traveling salesman selling uh, school supplies. Okay. And I just remember talking the the family talked about the fact that somehow we were related to David Niven 
That is, my grandfather's name was Hugh Niven, and he was a cousin somehow of David Niven. And also, they said somehow we were related to Cornelia Otis Skinner, who was a great actress way back. And somehow, I don't know whether this is what made me think, oh, (laughs) this is a possible thing to do in life. I really don't know where I got it, because we were out in the middle of corn and tomato country. (laughs) And, and, uh, And so... From a very early age. Also, my dad um, sold school supplies, and amongst those were stage curtains, velvet stage mm-hmm. curtains. And so he had at home many samples of stage curtains. So my brother and I would hang these curtains up yeah. and start to do plays. And the first play I wrote was called The King and the Fairy, and um, he was two. And I was five, and he had a non-speaking role. He was the king. (laughs) (laughs) And and yes, and it was basically a one-woman show. I was the fairy, and I danced around, and um, I made the costumes and everything. I mean, that was the first play that I can remember. And then in first, second grade, we had a wonderful teacher. I've forgotten her name, Miss Ruby, Mm. and Miss Ruby let us on Fridays create plays. Now, how she decided to do this, I don't know. And so, so from a very early age, I loved doing this thing and was encouraged. Yeah. Yeah. And, but I don't know where it came from out in the middle of Indiana. Yeah. Just in your blood somewhere. Yeah, yeah somewhere. You were performing as well as writing. So, and that's well, when I was five, you mean? Yeah, well, yeah, but it started then because then yes, you kind right. of kept doing that for yes, a long right. time. Yes, that's right. That's right. Yeah. Uh, and then, so did you did get any formal training at some point in high school or anything like that? Or? No, but I was in high school plays. You were, you but did stuff like that. terrified of singing, really terrified. Oh, um, I sang with choral group, I mean, the high school chorus, and I sang in church choirs, but if I was ever given a solo line, my throat would just clench up and I couldn't mm. couldn't do it, which is an interesting thing now because I have no such problem now. Mm. But back then, clear up into college, I could not sing a solo line. Mm. And um, actually... <laughs> The thing that got me over that was that I was in a singing group in college called the Collegians, and we did show tunes. And um, this is DePaul, we did right? DePaul uh, yeah. University, yeah. And uh, I was in this kind of pop musical theater singing group, and we did um, Carousel. And I was given a few solo lines in. Um, this was a real nice clam bake or what, how uh-huh. I can't get it right now. And my part was, first comes codfish chowder cooked in wow. iron kettles. Now, you'll notice there's a pause between each line. So here's what I did. First comes codfish chowder. But I was able to do it because yeah, I could vocalize right. on the things. Mm-hmm. And then my throat would seize up. But... The confidence that came after that I actually did that, that was the breakthrough. That's That's what I did. And then I could, after that, I could sing solos. Isn't that crazy? (laughs) Were you a voracious reader growing up? Yes, I was. Uh, Who were some of your influences or favorite authors? Uh, I was reading Reader's Digest. (laughs) Which was, uh, which like was a, a major way of, of getting, you know, writers. I mean, yeah. writers. Yes, that that's right. They had condensed books right. in Reader's Digest. Yes, I was a voracious, voracious reader. Yes. 
And were you listening to cast albums? In the, no. In the, no. I did not know anything about musicals at all. Actually, when Nancy Ford and I met, yeah. we were in, in 18 years old at DePaul University. We were in the same dormitory. And... Uh, Every year at DePaul University, people wrote original musicals. Right. Back then, there yeah. were would be three and four teams writing musicals every in this little tiny college. Mm-hmm. Two thousand pe- kids yeah. in the in the college, and there would be three or four teams writing musicals, and then we would compete with each other, and one would get picked. And Nancy and I. Uh, wrote a musical when we were 18 years old, and I had never seen a musical uh, at all. And so I don't know how I did this. <laughs> um, I think, well, after that first year at college, both Nancy and I auditioned to be in the chorus of Summerstock down in Louisville, Kentucky. Mm-hmm. I've forgotten the name of the theater. Uh, but that summer was my real introduction to musicals and to be in six or seven or eight, oh, I yeah. forget that's how many the best were. Way to learn. And they were all classics, you know, yeah. classic musicals. And I think I just absorbed the form. Uh, but we had already started writing our musical um, at that time. Yeah. And what uh, was that musical about? <laughs> We sat down and made a list of what we thought a good musical should have, and it was supposed to have color and have exotic things in it, and it was supposed to be funny, and we, we just made a list of what we thought a musical should be. And so we came up this, uh, with this idea about a princess from a country in the Eastern Europe who whose uh, country... Um, was falling on hard times and she was going to come to the United States in disguise as a a man uh, to work in the Northwest in the timber industry. Okay. (laughs) Now, where in the world? In order to learn the secrets of the timber industry and take the secrets back to her struggling country in Eastern Europe. Now, I don't know where we got that. (laughs) Already a strong female character, though. Yes, right, yeah. It's like, this is a trend. Yeah, it was called Four Reasons of Royalty. And and, uh, I just wrote the book along with a guy named David Mernitz. And at that time, Nancy was writing both lyrics Mm -hmm. lyrics and music. Mm -hmm. And so that was our first foray. And it's really crazy. Then the next musical that we wrote the following year was about the slums in New York. <laughs> and we had never been to New York or the slums of New York. Brilliant. So, so why not? Why? I mean. Yeah. Then the third musical we wrote, we were uh, all in New Haven because both of our husbands, uh, I was married to David Cryer right out of college, and Nancy married a guy named Bob Curry. And both Bob and David were going to be ministers. Mm-hmm. And so both... I mean, I thought I was going to be a minister's wife and do plays in the church basement. Okay. And they went to Yale Divinity School. Mm -hmm. So Nancy and I were there in the married quarters at Yale Divinity School, and we wrote another musical at that point. Uh, After one year, both David and Bob Curry decided to leave the ministry and go into show business (laughs) instead. Like you do. Yes. Like you do. And uh, Bob became a stage manager, rather mm-hmm. prolific stage manager, and David went oh, on yeah. to be David Cryer. Exactly. Yeah. Huh. And oh, I was, I was going to say, I want to go back for a second, if I mm-hmm. could. The list that you created originally of what makes a good musical, how would you revise that list today after all the musicals <laughs> you've done? What do, you now, what do you feel that makes a good musical? What would you put on that list? 
the first thing on the list I would put is that you have to care about somebody mm. in the musical and care about their journey. Mm. That's to me. That's when I go to see musicals now. That's where my thermometer is. But I don't know that that's a general thing that people look for. This is just my thing yes. because I think that music enables you to feel the emotion of the you know the whatever the, oh, yeah. the characters are in and if you're going to write a musical then the reason must be to express um, feelings and stuff which make you care about the characters and and their journey yeah. so that would be my very mm. first thing. Are and there any musicals that you've seen recently that you think do that does that very well? Well, obviously Hamilton, yeah. yes. Yeah. Um, I would have to think. No, for but a Hamilton while. Is, is, a, is a great one there. Yeah, because so I did care. About yeah. It. Yeah, yeah. Really did care. Mm -hmm. You know, and obviously people did care. Yeah. You know, and starting with kids, young kids, it was, it's so wonderful that that musical really brought musical theater to young people. Yeah. My granddaughter, when she was 12 years old, came to see it and absolutely memorized. Every word yeah. she can perform, Hamilton, the whole Hamilton for you. Yeah. That's exciting. Now, yeah, it That's is so exciting. exciting. So, yeah. yeah, it's wonderful. So, so you thought you were going to be a minister's wife doing yes. plays in the church basement. basement. That, that obviously yes. shifted around. Yes. How did you find your way to New York City? Well, immediately we came to New York City. <laughs> well, no, actually, no, we didn't. We took a detour to Boston because David got into graduate school at Boston University in directing. Now... I still was dragging my heels about myself going into show business. Yeah. I wept when he first announced we were going into show business, even though Nancy and I had been writing these shows yeah. and I'd been performing every summer in summer stock, loved it, but I had this thing in my head about being a minister's wife and somehow show business seemed frivolous oh. to me uh, and I thought, oh, this will be the end of our marriage. Well. 12 years later it was, but, but nevertheless, uh, at the time, kicking and screaming, I still thought I was going to be a teacher, do something serious with my life. And so I went to Harvard for their graduate program, their Master's of Arts in Teaching English, because I had majored in English literature in undergraduate, and so this was an extension of that. So I went to Harvard, and David went to Boston University. His was a two-year um, course uh, in directing. Mm -hmm. And um, then after my course was only a one-year course at Harvard, and then I taught high school English. And I was given in Melrose in, in Boston. Now, Nancy and her husband were in... Uh, came to Cambridge also, and Bob was in some classes that I took because he was went to graduate school at Harvard in English literature. So Bob and I were actually in a class together in graduate schools. So both Nancy and Bob and Gretchen and David were in Cambridge again. Then the following year, after David got through with his two-year stint, that's when we all moved to New York. However... Nancy had split up with Bob uh, by this time, and David was off doing a stint in the Army. Oh. So Nancy and I moved to New York <sighs> together to wait till David got out of the Army. Right. Uh, it was one of those, uh, what do you call it? 
it wasn't like he didn't go into the army for a long. He was drafted. Was, no, 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 he wasn't drafted. Mm-hmm. It was a something where you do six months or something. I can't okay. remember what the program was. But Nancy and I moved into New York on West 74th Street and uh, uh, to await David getting out of the army, which he did do in six months. And then David and I moved down the street from the apartment yeah. where Nancy and I had landed. And was the plan for you to, to perform when you moved to New York? Had you had you picked up that up yet, that you were, you know, had a voice for that? Yeah, because I started auditioning for you did. things. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I did. So, and I got into the chorus of... Little me. I mean, which is, on Broadway, yeah, no yeah, big deal. Broadway, I mean, yes. come on, that's right. like I know. <laughs> you I just know. went from like maybe I'll do be a minister's wife like to Broadway well, debut. Yeah. Well, I think I just decided, okay, if David's going to do it, I just rode into town on his coattails, okay. really. Because looking back, in truth, given given my green bean background in Indiana, I don't think I would have had the courage to come to New York by myself to try to go into showbiz. It was because David decided to do it that I kind of tagged along is what I did. So I've been eternally grateful to him because I love what I do now, and it's exactly what I should be doing. Oh, yes. Um, So I'm grateful to him for that. (laughs) So what was it like being in Little Me? Oh, compared to the summer stock experience. Right. Okay, well, it was wonderful, except for the fact that I had just gotten pregnant, and so I was sick at my stomach most of the whole out-of-town tryouts and stuff, and I didn't know that I was pregnant, and I went to doctors oh. again oh and goodness. again, and they were testing me. They said, oh... A little girl from Indiana is having trouble adjusting into be, in being a, in a oh show, in a Broadway show. And they gave me all kinds of tests and so forth. And it was that I was pregnant but did not know it. So uh, that was kind of – and I worked through seven and a half months of, of uh, little me until – because the costumes yeah. were on pier okay. lines, so you could get away with <laughs> oh my it. <laughs> my wife just had a baby a month ago, and I yeah. just can't even imagine going up yeah. to seven, seven months half of m- doing that. I seven and a half months. Yeah, well, thing. also, it took you know, a force of will to keep my stomach tucked in mm. for those times. Now, luckily, um, I did not have to be a Bob Fosse dancer. Yeah. Okay. I was a singer who moved, you know, so I didn't have to do... Well, at one point in Little Me, I was supposed to be jumping off the prow of a ship and we all, everybody in the chorus had to jump off the prow onto mattresses backstage and stuff. But as soon as we finally found out after three and a half months that I was pregnant, I was released from having to jump off the prow of the boat onto... Yeah, (laughs) wonderful. Um, What was it like working with Carolyn Lee and Cy Coleman? Well, because I was in the chorus, at that time it was a very, uh, there was a great consciousness about levels of mm. uh, uh, prestige, yeah. status. There were the chorus kids, and we all stuck together. There were the featured performers. Mm-hmm. There were the stars. And then the writers were somewhat removed. Mm. So though I had a passing acquaintance yeah. with Carolyn Lee and... Bob Fosse, and I mean, Bob Fosse every day. I mean, he was an amazing uh, 
guy because, again, I was in all the musical numbers, but I didn't have to do all right. the Bob Fosse. There was not that pressure on No, the there wasn't the, the dance pressure. Yeah. But, you know, he would read, well, there was one number that he restaged 17 times, oh I remember, goodness. while we were on the road. Every day we'd go in, and it was the death scene with Sid Caesar dying, and it, and we did it over <laughs> it again 17 times until he he got it right. So um, it was interesting. Yeah, and and Sid Caesar again because I never went out after the show. Sure. With Sid. Again, there was there were these layers. You you mm-hmm. stuck mm-hmm. the chorus kids. We were called chorus kids at the time. We all stuck together. And, um, you know, that was yeah. fun, being oh, yeah, in the dressing yeah. room with all the other chorus girls. Mm. And When you were auditioning for musicals, mm-hmm. what was your go-to audition song? Why Can't You Behave? Because mm. it showed my lower range. Mm. And if you at that time, if you were in a chorus, you were de- very definitely an alto <laughs> or a soprano. And so I thought there was probably a better chance because I had a very strong lower voice. Um, and so that's probably how I got into the chorus of that, and then 110 in the shade. And did you have so? Did you leave little me to have said child? I had said child. Yeah. Her name was Robin. Nice. Yes. And then you had Robin, and then you just went right back into auditioning. Or, yeah, you, yeah, I did. 110. Was only I think like I went. Year, I, think. I went back into Little Me. It was still running. Oh. I went back into that show, and I was nursing. I've, when when Robin was born, when Robin was born, she came out angry. She came out, Wah! you know, with a big, low voice. And I think it was because of all those times early on where I was jumping off the prow of a boat, and she was just hanging on for dear life in there. What are you doing, Mom? I know, what are you doing? Why are you putting me through this, Mom? Oh yeah. So I went back, and I and, and uh, I remember that that was kind of hard at that time. I did not know that you were supposed to drink a lot of water if you were nursing, and oh. I think so. Every night I was really sweating doing the show, mm-hmm. and so I I remember being only able to nurse for about three months yeah. um, while I was still d- back in the show, and then you know coming home with a little three month old yeah. or two month old. So impressed you did that. <laughs> And then, so you did 110 in the Shade, mm-hmm. and then after 110, what was your, you went into 1776, is that That's correct? right. But also, though, Nancy and I, yeah. uh, well, we had already written Now's the Time for All right. Good Men. That so, was yeah. in 1967. So while so, you were performing, you still obviously had this interest of lyric and book writing. Is that correct? Yes. Well, let's see. After we came to New York, it took us five years to get Now's the Time mm-hmm. on. And I didn't intend to perform in that originally. We wrote it, and uh, we went into production, uh, and and David wasn't in it either. Yeah. We were both, uh, David was a co-producer with Albert Poland mm-hmm. for it, and Nancy and I were the writers, um, and we cast it, and we were in rehearsal, and then... Very shortly, we discovered that the guy who was the playing, playing the leading character was not cutting it. And so David Cryer went in to the show mm-hmm. at that point, and he was wonderful. Mm-hmm. And then about a week before we opened, the woman who was playing the female lead got 
a horrible, horrible case of laryngitis and actually had been having vocal problems oh. all along. And so I stepped in and we hadn't intended to do this. And it seemed like, oh, this is a vanity production okay. because David was a co-producer right. on it. Then he stepped into the lead. I was a writer on the show. And then I stepped into the lead. So I changed my name. To, to Sally Niven. And then when you told the story a, a little while ago, I realized that's where you got Niven. I mean, I mean, yeah. because of your that's, family heritage. Yes, because I was related to David Niven. Yes. You know, so I'm hey, I'm going to use that. I always wanted to know why you picked yeah. that. I always was curious yeah, about yeah. that. Well, and Sally Niven was I. I chose that name as an actress, Sally mm-hmm. Niven, so that seemed like Gretchen Cryer wrote the show, but yeah. Sally Niven was the one in it, because I was desperately trying to keep this from being a vanity production. Of course. So, when the reviews came out, Sally Niven got wonderful reviews, and Gretchen Cryer not so much. And I recall there was some reviewer that talked about it was a pity that Sally Niven had to say those lines written by Gretchen Cryer. Something, <laughs> something really like no that. Well, that not they... no, way back at the first, people did not know. I mean, I hadn't done anything else except be in the chorus of, oh, uh, of that, a couple and, and of that, shows. And that didn't register for people to no, say, oh, well, no, that's no, the same. no, that's oh, the same person. Oh, no. Wow. For our no, listeners who, who might be unfamiliar, would you tell us what the uh, synopsis or the plot is of Now is the Time and the inspiration behind it? Yeah, okay. Um, it was about a guy who had been a conscientious objector, um, and this would have been during. The Vietnam I mean, War. We're mm-hmm. peak to yeah, the era. yeah, yeah, right, right. And who comes, who has been in prison, and who gets out, and decides to he wants to be a teacher, and he goes to a small town in Indiana, where it turns out that the guy who was the principal of this school had known this guy's father and so was willing to give him a job mm. even though he came into the school with a prison record mm. but with the idea that he was supposed to keep that secret that he had been a conscientious objector because remember this was the middle of Indiana in 1967 and uh, at that time Indiana well and still is very conservative and um, this all was based on the experiences of my brother, who was a conscientious objector in the 60s, who did burn his draft card and went to federal penitentiary in Springfield, Illinois, uh, for a couple of years. Mm -hmm. And then, yeah, yeah, at that time, conscientious objectors were put away. And he chose not to flee to Canada, as some people did, who were objectors. He decided, no, I'm going to do it, I'm going to make my stand, and I'm going to go to prison, which he did do. Then when he got out, he continued to protest, uh, clear through all the stuff going on in 68. He was in all the the riots in Chicago and so forth. And he ended up being jailed 32 more times, just for short, a month, two months, three months. That was his life, up until 1973, when we pulled out of Vietnam. Um, anyway, so I wrote Now is the Time for All Good Men, basing the character on my brother, but it was a totally different storyline. Sure, sure. The idea being that he comes into this little town and um, he influences a young student uh, who has the same leanings of not wanting to, to go to war. And he ends up but raising the ire of the dad of, of the kid uh, 
and gets thrown out of town, mm-hmm. gets thrown out of school. Meanwhile, though, he has a love affair with the young woman, which I played, uh, who's a teacher, who's a widow, mm-hmm. and who's a, who's a very uh, naive mm-hmm. country girl. Mm-hmm. Um, so that's the yeah. plot. <laughs> Did your brother ever get to see the show? Yes, he did, I think. Yeah, surely he did. Surely he did, unless he was in jail at the time. (laughs) I can't remember if he was in jail. He knows that the thing drew on his experiences. Mm -hmm. And I'm so curious, this was an off-Broadway show back then. How much did you have to raise? (laughs) $40,000. Isn't that crazy? Yes. And what theater was this? And uh, the theater Delice at the time, oh, which is now the Lucille Lortel. Yeah. And there was a cast yeah. album made, which I think yes. is just incredible yeah. that, that was done. I mean, yeah, I, and it ran four months, yeah. which was interesting because it got, it didn't get great reviews. It yeah. got one or two really good reviews from Emery Lewis or somebody okay. out in New Jersey. I mean, we used that. Yeah. Um, and it, it kind of was a cult mm-hmm. thing. Um, oh, God. It had one of the writers who was a big fan of the show, and I'm now, damn it, who wrote Finnegan's Rainbow? Yip Harburg? Yip, Yip. Harburg. Yip came to see the show. Yeah, well, he's very political. Yes, he was. And he came again and again and again, and he took me to see his new shows, and we became friends. Oh, man. Uh, and that was amazing, yeah. you know, wow. because he, he brought people to see that show. Right. So there was an audience that came from the War Resisters yeah, <laughs> and so forth, sure. you know, yeah. and um, that it ran for months yeah. was was decent yeah, back yeah, then. Yeah, totally. And then, yeah, uh, and then the, the next show you did, uh, The Last Sweet Days of Isaac, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Uh, with a former guest of ours, Austin Pendleton, mm-hmm. uh, was a little, little more different than, than the nat- their natural book musical that was. Yeah. Now's the time. For Now's the time. Nancy and I were still in our Rodgers and Hammerstein phase. <laughs> no, which, I hear which, that, yeah. Because our writing, when we were in college, really was like Rodgers and Hammerstein. But they were our idols. Sure. At that time, right. and so you know that was our first. That now is the time very much was it had, um, you know, sung dialogue right. and so forth. It was very much in that in mold, that style. Yeah. Then last sweet days of Isaac, we completely broke from that yeah. completely, and uh, the songs. Although uh, I justified having sung dialogue in the f- first half of. Um, Last Sweet Days of Isaac by the fact that the character of Isaac was a life poet who wanted to underscore his whole life with music and so if he could he felt a certain moment required a song he would sing and so forth so that's how we justified the use of music in the first half then in the second half act two of Mm -hmm. the show which was uh, it was like two one acts, right. really, with the same character. Isaac in the first show was 32 years old. In the second show, he's 19, and he's a protester. Right. And that, again, came from my brother. Right. Well, it's 1970. Uh, the war yeah, is still yes, going on. Yeah. still going on. And uh, he has been jailed in the in the second show. And Austin was in a jail cell on one side, and Freddie Weber was in a jail cell. And they were communicating through 
big TV screens. I mean, again, I was drawing on Marshall McLuhan at the time and understanding media. And um, so wrote this kind of surreal thing. And the music in the second half came from a rock group that was just suspended up above the stage. And the songs were just inserted as kind of comments along yeah. the way. So the two characters in the second half mm -hmm. were not singing their thoughts. The the music came from the zeitgeist. Or something? The zeitgeist, yeah. Yeah. Mm -hmm. yeah, yeah, yeah. So it was a completely stylistic, yeah. different Which thing. Which was very popular. I mean, I feel like there, there was more exploration in the musical theater world in the mm -hmm. late '60s, early '70s mm -hmm. with those kinds of nonlinear yeah. type shows yeah, yeah, yeah. come out, and there's yeah. more conceptual musicals. Which yeah, you were right. right on the forefront of that, which I find. Yeah. And then how was this received? This got the best reviews that Nancy and I ever got or will ever get, right. and we knew it at the time. Yeah. We sat there after the reviews came out and said, we will probably never get reviews like this. I mean, it was across the board. Mm -hmm. I don't recall any negative reviews, and they were all rave reviews. So, Wild. so Wild. <laughs> go figure. Wild. Yeah, it's yeah. well-deserved, and there was an album made of that as well. Yeah. Mm -hmm. You can listen to it in all the Listening mm -hmm. Places uh, listeners. Yeah. It's, it's really great. It's after after you finished now is the time for all good men and the reviews were not as enthusiastic as mm -hmm. you were hoping did you and Nancy have a moment of well that was fun and now we'll move on to other things and we're not going to write another show yeah well actually it happened after we had written the last sweet days of isaac mm -hmm. and we're in previews because up until 2 days before we opened the last sweet days of isaac it was a dud. Mm. And part of that was because Austin had not yet found his moxie or mm. found, oh, he, the character had not gotten the wonderful comic arrogance that the character has. Uh, and he seemed like just a creepy, insane person caught in an elevator mm -hmm. with the other character. In the first act, in yeah. the first act the, it's the elevator play, right. and they are caught in the elevator, and he's trying to teach her the meaning of life in the elevator. And uh, so, but what happened, the miraculous... Oh, you asked me, was there a time yeah. when we thought we weren't going to go on? Yeah, because the audiences were coming out of the previews of that thing saying things like, this is the worst show I have ever seen in my life. Oh, that's scary. That's very scary. Yeah. I must say, <laughs> as we were creeping toward the opening, though, there was one thing that one lady said that I have never forgotten. She came out and said, you know, it was just so funny, I could hardly keep from laughing. And so, and this had been a very silent audience that day. <laughs> but we found out at least somebody was thinking it was funny, but she could hardly keep from laughing. Anyway, what happened is line. that in previews, I was still performing, not performing, I was still uh, understudying in um, 1776. Right. And so I wasn't performing unless uh, mm -hmm. Virginia was sick or Betty was sick. So um, I was opening this show off Broadway while I still was holding a job um, as an understudy. And I just remember that Nancy and I thought, well, you know, this probably isn't going to work and maybe I'll just maybe I'll just go on and be a performer and Nancy had been uh, working as a pianist she mm -hmm. had done the Fantastics and she had done Brecht on Brecht and so yeah. forth and she was going that direction and then what happened is I think it was a Sunday afternoon and we were going to open on Tuesday 
uh, the whole cast of 1776 came in support of me to The Last Sweet Days of Isaac in the afternoon. And the minute that Austin walked on that day, he had this frazzled, manic quality that immediately caused the audience to start laughing. And they started laughing from the minute he walked onto the stage and he took it by the throat Mm. and became Isaac that day instead of being a creepy guy Mm -hmm. in an elevator preying on a woman. He became the guy with all the answers who was teaching this woman how to live. Mm -hmm. And it suddenly became wildly funny. My dear friends in 1776 transformed the show by... Somehow, well, plus the fact that that day, for some reason, when when Austin flew, came onto stage disheveled, <laughs> looking with, with all this equipment hanging on him, the videotape yeah. and the tape recorder and, and all, all of that, um, he was instantly visually funny. And my people in 1776 laughed. They ate it up. They ate it up. Oh, my goodness. And, and that's when... Austin found the mm. character and found the dynamic of the piece, and then he hung on to it for a year and a half, and, it, and, and I think he only missed one performance or something, or if even if that much. And, you know, and there was never anybody else like him. Uh, Larry Moss understudied him and did go on once or twice, and, wow. and, he was, and Larry was wonderful. He was wonderful. But Austin defined that character. And so that was, I mean, that was just an amazing thing yeah. because oh, if, if, if that hadn't happened, if, you know, the 1776 friends hadn't come in support and started laughing right away, who knows? You never know oh. what's going to allow... An actor to grab and and find mm-hmm. the performance. Yeah. I'm so I'm so curious. Um, why didn't you replace him? Who Austin in, in the rehearsal process? If it was taking well, because we thought it was the fault of the piece. Mm. Ah, we just thought we were all going down together. Mm-hmm. Oh, okay. On this ship. Yeah. It just it just uh, you know we just thought oh well maybe it's not as funny as we thought it mm-hmm. was. And maybe, yeah. 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 What a turnaround, though. Yeah, what a turnaround, yeah. Because you see, when we first did a reading of the piece, way back before we, before Albert and David decided, oh no, they didn't produce that one. They produced the other one. Who, oh, it was uh, Mark Wright and Hala Stoddard produced, and Dwayne Wilder, who produced this one. Before we got them to produce it, we did a reading in my living room with Austin and Freddie. And they, in my living room, they were funny, mm. and they were perfect for it. And then somehow, in rehearsal, it got lost. Yeah. Mm. You never know uh, how these things happen. And then suddenly it was reclaimed again, and, and it was fantastic. Now, as a writer, do you like being at as many rehearsals as possible? or do oh, you yeah. Like, so you don't like... And it? Word d- thought it was fine for us. Word Baker, Word Baker the director, was directing. Yeah. He had directed Now is the Time also. Yes, that's yeah. right. And then he uh, directed this, and basically... He just, uh, Word always let my writing alone, which was interesting. He didn't mm. ever try to come in and say, oh, this we need to change this moment or this. He never did that. How did, you know, you're, you're an actor and a, and a writer. How did each other help, how did mm. one help the other? You know, did you find that like, oh, I, I'm a better mm-hmm. writer because of my performing career or vice versa? Oh. Did you ever notice yeah, that kind of Yes, situation? oh, definitely, yeah. yeah. Mainly because I can... 
write scenes from the perspective of being an actor, you know, mm-hmm. and really imagine doing it, right. you know. Oh, definitely. I think it's definitely a, a plus. Yeah. I think it's really good in the theater to have as many disciplines at your fingertips as possible Agreed. because they really they really inform each other and and feed mm-hmm. each other I think yeah, yeah definitely I, I love now after last sweet days of Isaac um, my husband and I split up and or actually just right before it had opened we had split up and he then moved to the west coast so I was uh, a single mom in New York with two kids wow. and uh at that point, because The Last Sweet Days of Isaac was a big hit, and as a writer, it felt to me like, okay, then that's the direction that I should go. I should put my energy rather mm-hmm. than, okay, if I'm raising two kids by myself in New York City, how do I go on auditions and go out of town with right. a show or whatever? You know, it yeah. just seemed like. No, it seemed like the way was before me was to be a writer because I had just had a hit show that got these great reviews, yeah, you know. Yeah, yeah. And tons so, of awards, we should have mentioned Yeah, as oh, well. that's right, yeah. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. We got the Obie and the Drama no, Desk yeah. and Outer Critics yeah. and all of that. So um, that's where I took a turn for not pursuing an acting career. Now, I still did perform from time to time. Yeah down the line, you know, but that was where I kind of decided I better go this other direction because of my circumstances. I still loved performing and, and had gotten a great review and now is the time for all good men likened me to Geraldine Page and Barbara Harris and stuff like that, which was crazy. Good company. Yeah, it was very good company. And so, you know, I've always loved performing, but just the circumstances sure. pointed me in a different direction. With Lucky Landslots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. Dearly beloved, we are gathered here today to... Has anyone seen the bride and groom? Sorry, sorry, we're here. We were getting lucky in the limo and we lost track of time. No, Lucky Land Casino, with cash prizes that add up quicker than a guest registry. In that case, I pronounce you Lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Daily bonuses are waiting. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. With Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. This is your captain speaking. Uh, we've got clear runway and the weather's fine, but we're just going to circle up here a while and uh, get lucky. No, no, nothing like that. It's just these cash prizes add up quick. So I suggest you sit back, keep your tray table upright, and start getting lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Hey, podcast listeners. Are you looking for a place to rehearse in New York City that is clean, spacious, and most importantly, affordable? Come check out Shetler Studios and Theaters, our wonderful host for these podcasts. Shetler is centrally located on West 54th Street between Broadway and 8th Avenue, 
Right in the heart of the theater district. Right in the heart, you'll find music, dance, and acting studios, complemented by two black box theaters and six presentation venues. The professional facilities, inspired environment, and expert industry staff combine to provide the New York artist with an unparalleled studio experience. Visit their website at shetlerstudios.com. That's S-H-E-T-L-E-R studios.com. Shetler Studios and Theaters is our home for recording the legends of Broadway, and we hope that you make it your artistic home, too. That's Shetler, S-H-E-T-L-E-R studios.com. See you here. And the next project that you did write with Nancy uh, was... Shelter. Shelter, right. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Uh, we sometimes say a lesser-known uh, Broadway mm-hmm. piece. Well, it only ran one month. <laughs> to be fair. In, in February, yes. oh. 1973. Yeah. <laughs> well, <laughs> But uh, I'm fascinated with the plot of this show because it did seem there were elements of it that were way ahead of its time. Like? Like Arthur, the computer. Oh, that, yeah. Like, well, you know, yes. was a whole character well, this in the was, show. I with, mean, like, this, this was, was 1973, before, yeah. Before personal computers, yeah. you know. And, and once again, for our listeners who might not be as familiar, what is what is the story of Shelter? Okay. It's about a guy who's living in a TV studio where he uh, writes commercials. Um, and he... Um, has decided to live in the studio on the set of the kitchen, the bedroom, the living room uh, that they shoot these commercials in. Mm -hmm. And so he has decided that he will stay there with his best friend, Arthur, the computer. Arthur helps him write jingles uh, for the commercials and so forth. But he programs Arthur to be able to create the sunrise at whatever time he wants it. At night, he can project stars on the sky. He can create a wind from the west. He laughs at Michael's jokes. Um, he sings along with Michael. And so Michael, actually, Michael is married with a wife out in the suburbs someplace with seven adopted kids. And he says their marriage is better than it's ever been. But he lives in this creative... The show is about self-delusion. That's right, what no. it's about. Right. And, but it also it was about people <laughs> creating their own realities right. around them. And today, we actually can do this. I mean, this is the crazy thing. That show was about people actually... Cre- now we're getting, you know, the people are starting to live in virtual realities yeah, yeah. of various kinds yes, and have yes. experiences in virtual reality. And that's sort of... Back then, though, it was metaphoric. It was a fantasy. There was like, it this was, will yes. never happen. Well, yeah, this is, well, this well it was just me- meant to be metaphoric, yeah. you know, about creating your own reality. And um, so about... Two years ago, we did a reading of it at 54 Below, and Johnny, my son, played the part of Michael, and it was very interesting because it was kind of spooky because it was very current. Yeah. Mm -hmm. But now it was about a guy who really is creating his own world in, I mean, who really is, you know, doing that in the studio with the help of his computer who, and uh, into the studio comes this young woman to make a commercial. 
but she's just had the trauma of her husband has just left her, and so she's supposed to be doing a happy housewife commercial, and she breaks down in the middle of the commercial mm-hmm. um, because uh, her husband has just left her. And so the the writer, Michael, comes out of it, you know, Glaston Studios, comes out mm-hmm. to comfort her, and he ends up seducing her, bringing her into his world, mm. Uh, you know, he has great sympathy for her situation. Ah, uh, her husband must have been a cad mm-hmm. to leave her and so forth. And he gives her great sympathy and takes her into his living room. Mm-hmm. And she starts accepting his reality. Mm-hmm. And it's about getting sucked into somebody else's reality. <laughs> and so it was very interesting. I wanted to try to get that show on again. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Uh, you know, and Johnny wanted to do it. Mm-hmm. And, uh, you know, at some point, I'm going to put a lot of effort behind that to try to get make that happen. Because yeah. Johnny was really good in it, too. Oh, sure. Um, so. Yeah, I would like that. Yeah. yeah. I think we'd all like to and, see that yeah. again. Yeah. Yeah. Now, you and Nancy have come up with so many daring ideas for the stories that you tell. Has mm-hmm. there ever been an idea that both of you said, this is too out of the box, this might not no. <laughs> good. Mm-mm. That's what I like. No. Good. <laughs> Never. No. That's the good. That's the best answer. That's the best the answer. thing is that the show that we still haven't gotten on mm-hmm. about Eleanor Roosevelt is we reverted to a, a an older style because we wanted to use music redolent of the era, mm-hmm. and that meant that we didn't go all wacky. Mm. Uh, there is sung dialogue and so forth and in the way kind of, of old-time musicals sure. because we are capturing yes. an era. However, we set it after everybody is dead in the cosmos and pieces of the past. It's a birthday party for Eleanor, her 125th or whatever it is at, mm-hmm. on the given year. And... Um, uh, Actually, Franklin has arranged this birthday party because he died with another woman, mm-hmm. Lucy Mercer, mm-hmm. with him. And he has wanted to apologize to Eleanor ever since. But, but they had not spoken since he died right. in, the, in the afterworld, in, mm-hmm. the, in the cosmos. And so he's arranged this big birthday party, hoping that she will come and uh, he will have a chance to make amends. That's the setup yeah. for the thing. So... Um, Alice Roosevelt Longworth, who was a big party giver, has arranged the whole party for Franklin and has invited um, Albert Einstein to play the violin. And uh, Albert has brought his latest scientific discovery, which is the ability to juxtapose moments from the past on the present by playing his violin. And so throughout the show, when Albert is playing, pieces of the past keep popping up and they have to look at stuff that Mm -hmm. happened and deal with it which they had never done in real life. They never really dealt with the Lucy Mercer thing. Well, yeah. Eleanor wanted a divorce, but uh, Franklin's mama wouldn't allow it. And so they lived uh, together, but separately for the yeah. you know yeah. rest of their days. And they had not really dealt with all of that. But they have to watch Franklin having his affair with Lucy yeah. Mercer. So it's a surreal setting of... In certain, using certain traditional musical uh, conventions. Yes. yes, yes, yes. But it's still, it's a surreal idea. Yeah, yes. <laughs> you know, the, the past is floating through right. the present. When did you both begin writing this? Or when did the idea first Oh, come? long, f- decades ago. Yeah. Uh, oh, yeah. We were asked to write 
just the score for a show about Eleanor with a book by somebody else. And we did that for two or three years uh, until we, it just wasn't getting any traction. And we didn't. It was a very just uh, down-to-earth straight it didn't have any fantasy or mm-hmm. any, it wasn't very conventional very very conventional and we split with the guy who was writing the book and the producer who was producing that and t- told them that we wanted to go off and write our own Eleanor show mm-hmm. which yeah. we did do and um, had a legal arrangement with yeah, them yeah. and yeah. so forth and so that's when we came up with this whole other take on it, so that it wasn't just a, a straight uh, blow by blow. Yeah, telling. yeah, yeah. Have there been any readings or workshops of you and Nancy? We did a thing at the Cherry Lane mm-hmm. last year. Okay. Uh, we had a wonderful cast: Karen Ziemba, oh, yeah. Greg Edelman played Franklin, uh, and um, Heather McRae played um, wow. Lorena Hickok. Uh, it, it was it was a wonderful wonderful cast, what a, yeah. and we just did readings uh, two an afternoon and evening reading two packed houses Great. at the Cherry Lane, uh, hoping to get a producer. Mm-hmm. But you know it's a big Broadway show, mm-hmm. and we don't have an in on the Broadway scene. I mean we only had that one Broadway show right, 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 that right. ran one month, yeah. you know, <laughs> and uh, I think. Uh, I don't know. It's very hard for us to try to get somebody. Actually, the idea that we have now is that we think we'd love to have a woman director who, I mean, somebody who'd bring great imagination. Sure. Mm-hmm. And this great. is called, like is it still Richard. called Einstein and the Rosenbergs? No, it's not. It's called Eleanor. It's had about great. 20 different names right. <laughs> over the years because it almost got done over a dozen times uh-huh. over the when I say decades it has yeah, been yeah. decades mm-hmm. and starting back with Joe Papp after uh, um, I'm getting my acting he was going to produce our next show which was the Eleanor show oh, wow. mm-hmm. he was going to do that that was after I'm getting my act yeah well, uh-huh. which is a good transition so yeah. how did I mean I know that you were I read or heard you talk that you were going sort of uh, touring around a little bit or, or singing in clubs like or your songs right and then did he how did you interact with him for the first time or how did the idea for I'm getting my act together and taking it on the sure. road come to yeah. fruition yeah because he was part of that I mean oh yeah he was but the way it started the way we got the idea for the show is that in the mid 70s after shelter right. tanked yeah Nancy and I were kind of giving up yeah. on the theater because we thought, uh, yeah. you know, it's just not working. In spite of having had right. <laughs> a sweet day, yeah. but still, we were. We thought we want to do something where we'll have more control of the whole thing. So we'll make, write our own songs. We'll call them a scrapbook of our lives, and we'll make recordings, which we did yeah. two for RCA, and we started performing in clubs and stuff. Yeah. We knew that we wanted to write a show about the changes that women had gone through because both Nancy grew up, Nancy and I grew up with a 50s sensibilities, sensibility when we were in our teens. That that whole way, of, that idea of what the identity of a woman should be and what the identity of a wife should be right. and all of that. And then we both <laughs> broke out of it and had traveled quite a distance and all this stuff was happening with the women's movement in the 70s and so forth and we knew we wanted to write about that but could not figure out the form of it and meanwhile we were performing in clubs doing the scrapbook of our lives Mm -hmm. in which we had written songs that were about our lives and our 
the people that we knew. Mm -hmm. It literally was yeah. like a scrapbook, yeah. unabashedly so. Yeah. And one night when we were performing at the cookery, I suddenly thought in the middle of a song while we were singing, I thought, oh, my God, we'll make the show be about a cabaret singer who's written her new act and the songs are expressing how she really feels and who she really is and who, you know, what kind of relationship she, she's looking at it with a naked eye of truth, of, of the changes that she's been through. And her manager likes her the way she used to be. He doesn't like the new, yeah. the new identity, yeah. identity. And this thought all came in the middle of singing a song, and while the people were applauding after I sung, I turned around to Nancy and I said, I know how we can write this show, and it's going to be called I'm Getting My Act Together and Taking It on the Road. And I turned back around, <laughs> and we started singing our next song. And as soon as we had that idea, it wrote itself. Mm. It was so easy. I wrote it in just a few months. Oh. And um, Craig Zayden... Oh, yeah. came to see us at the ballroom when we were performing. And he's the one who said that we should take it to Joe because he was Joe's assistant yes. at the time at yes. the public. And so he had us do a reading of it for Joe. Oh, actually, no. The first thing we did was he took Nancy and me to just do an audition for Joe. Right. And Nancy and I did the whole thing. Mm -hmm. And at that point, the book wasn't completely finished, but most of the score was finished. And Joe immediately said, yes, he was going to do it. Wow. And he walked out of the room with his entourage, got <laughs> into the elevator. The elevator doors closed, and Nancy and I were going, yay, yay, yeah. this is fantastic. The elevator doors opened, and he walked back in, and he said to me, and you're going to be in it, right? And I said, Oh, no, I hadn't <laughs> thought of being in it. And he said, well, it's, it's your story, so I think you should be in it. I said, well, but Joe, then how, how am I going to, I haven't even finished writing it yet. How do I have the objectivity? He said, no, nah, that's okay, that's okay, you should be in it. And he gave me a day to think about it. And I talked to Nancy, and we thought about it, and we decided, okay, that would be a good idea. Was that a good decision? Yeah, think? it was. Yeah. It was a very good decision, yeah. yeah. And how involved was he uh, throughout the process from then on? Well, okay. He was very involved, and it was sometimes not a pretty sight. Mm -hmm. um, two weeks into rehearsal, he came in and just saw us doing a run-through and decided that he didn't want to go ahead with the project. And uh, we were crushed. I mean, he just came in. Obviously, it's really hard to play comedy to an empty theater, uh, you know. Yeah. He just wandered in and mm -hmm. didn't, didn't think this was something that was going to work. And we went to Craig and said, Joe's just said he's not going to do it. And Craig said, Joe respects strength. Tell him to give you three or four more days to pull it together, and then he can come and see it. Because we said we weren't ready. He just walked right. in and decided he... And so we did go to Joe and say, we want four more days, and then you can come and see it. Well, we worked our asses off mm. on this, you know, rehearsing, but we also invited a hundred friends to come to the Anspacher, because we were rehearsing in the theater that we were going to be doing it in. And they showed up. Joe was late to, to the run-through, and so our band 
members just started playing songs. Now, we hadn't been planning to do that before. They were right. warming up the audience. Yeah. So by the time Joe walked in late, the audience was warmed up. Oh, yeah. And, you know, yeah. we'd all been singing songs of the era, yeah. you know, yeah. um, at that point. And he came in, and the minute he came in and sat down, the character, the managers, whose name was Joe also, walked onto stage, and it was Joel Fabiani, uh -huh. and um, Joe, the character, walked on stage and said, okay, let's get going here, you know, which was the first line of the show, mm -hmm. and, and it had a raucous audience, and after that, Joe didn't say much. He just said, well, your friends liked it, but he didn't say... I'm definitely going ahead. We just went ahead, tiptoeing ahead, not knowing if he was going to pull the plug. <laughs> Opening night, um, a whole class from Stony Brook came to, a class in theater came, and they were supposed to study the piece, and they had all brought their notebooks and things to write notes about it. I don't... Yeah. And... Also, critics were coming to opening night. This was back when critics came to they opening night. Did, yeah. So basically, we were facing an audience of everybody with notepads and and okay. But the big thing that happened opening night is that as I was standing in the vomitorium, getting ready to rush on the stage, Joe came up behind me and said, you're playing that first scene all wrong. Oh my goodness. You're playing it all wrong. You gotta, you gotta come at it from a different direction. You got. I said, well, what, what am I supposed to do? And boom, I had to run on because that was my cue and I was running on. So I lurched out onto the stage, not having the slightest idea of what I should play because he had just told me that whatever I was playing was all wrong for this first scene. Well, it turns out, that this was his theory of how to get a fresh performance oh out of somebody. Oh, God. Now, <laughs> anyway, that oh opening God. night actually was a disaster because not only was I off balance, but the audience, were they weren't yeah. responding. They were all taking notes in their books, and, <laughs> and so it got terrible reviews, huh. except from William Rady of the Associated Press, but heinous reviews. But a lot of it was, there were a lot of male reviewers who took, uh, who did not like that male chauvinism was being made fun of. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And so uh, there was a lot of that, of uh, that, that's where they were coming from mm -hmm. in looking at this piece. And so they found my character to be obnoxious and, you know, abrasive. Yes. Abrasive right. and obnoxious. Yeah. And, strong. Uh, <laughs> yes, yeah, strong, yes. But, but at that time, yeah, it was exactly. abrasive and ob obnoxious. Yeah. Okay, but the interesting thing is, though, that audiences after that opening night really liked it. Oh. And so the audience, even in spite of the bad reviews, mm -hmm people started coming. Mm -hmm. Also, it was riding the crest of what was going on in sexual politics right, at the time. Yeah. And Joe, to his great credit, because he loved to beat the critics, decided that he was going to let it run for its six-week. It was going to be a six-week run. He would let it run. Yeah. And he also decided to have Wednesday night talkbacks. 
and because the Wednesday nights were the nights that were selling the least tickets. Yes, classic. Okay. Yeah. Well, as soon as the talkbacks start, Wednesday night sold out first, and the the talkbacks engendered these. <laughs> sometimes almost violent fights in the audience and stuff with people. Or, I mean, we'd hear a woman say, don't touch me. Oh, and, and other people would walk out. I mean, because people argued among themselves mm. in the audience. And, you know, and they were challenging us about stuff. And um, women started bringing their boyfriends to the show as a Rorschach test to see <laughs> how they responded, whether or not they wanted to continue dating this guy mm. and so forth. But anyway, by the end of six weeks, it was starting to sell out. Mm. So, so Joe extended it another six weeks. He ended up extending it half a dozen times mm. in the Ansbacher and then decided to move it to an off-Broadway house. Not move it to Broadway, right. but move it to the downtown circle in the square, which was 300 seats. Oh so, so that's how that grew. And so if anybody else had been producing it, but Joe, it would have closed mm -hmm. right away. Mm -hmm. So even though <laughs> I yeah. hated it that he came up and did that to me right yeah. on opening night, um, I still... I mean, I love the guy, and he's the one who kept it running, and then it ran yeah. for three years. Yeah. And you found know, its its audience clearly, and, its audience, and, and yeah. it's amazing that there was theater that was creating, you know, uh, people's opinions and controversy, and that seems like what the public yeah. theater always set out to yeah. do anyway: yeah. is make people think a little yes. bit, and make people change lives and in that indeed, regard. It did. And it did. That's and right. did you stay with it the entire time? No, one year. Okay. I stayed with it one year, and then I was replaced by a lot of terrific people. Virginia Bestoff went oh. in it right after me. Um, but she had breast cancer, oh. and uh, <laughs> she had a breast removed right before she went into the show, and so she decided not to do chemotherapy <gasps> because she didn't want to lose her hair oh. going into the show. And so it spread, and within six months, she had to stop oh performing because it had spread. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, so, and then after her, I forget who all the people, Betty Buckley but did it for a while. Basically, um, the people you understudied in yes, 1776. Yes. Isn't that right. crazy? It, Ten yeah, years earlier. Crazy. That is yeah. wild to me. Yeah. Uh, and then I went to California and opened it out there. Mm -hmm. And Betty Buckley replaced me out there, <laughs> and uh, I opened it in Chicago. Then I played it a year in New York, and uh -huh. then and then I think Chicago was second. Yeah. Uh, and we opened it there, and it ran for a year there. Phyllis Newman played it there. Oh, uh, Donna McKechnie, mm -hmm. uh, Betty Aberlin. Um, so there were multiple companies of it. Oh yeah, Nancy Dussault did a company, oh, and she so. was wonderful. Connie Stevens did a company, <laughs> and that wow. was that was strange. Yes. <laughs> Saw casting, so yeah. Strange casting, yeah. Yes. But she was a star, and yeah. So, so that yeah, was so they did. You know. And um, it was done at Encores a couple of years ago. Is that yes. Yeah. Oh my God. Was it Renee, nice to Renee Elise Gold? Oh my gosh. Renee. Yeah. Elise Gold. Yeah. 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 Was it nice to revisit it? Oh yeah, and she was so wonderful. She was just fantastic. Yeah. Really fantastic. Um, so, yeah, it was really... Now, how many projects have you and Nancy done in totality together? Twelve. Mm -hmm. But that's three back at... Mm -hmm. Two at DePaul University, yeah. one at Boston University, uh -huh. yeah. then nine here. Uh, but we have others that we haven't gotten on. Of course. Mm -hmm. I yeah. mean, these are the ones that have been produced. Right. What is it about her specifically that makes you keep coming back to her as a, as a partner? 
well, we sort of just read each other's minds mm-hmm. about stuff. Uh, you know, you establish a partnership and you just keep doing it. Yeah. Um, you know, we were trying to get the Eleanor show on in the late 80s. We did a workshop at Williamstown and uh, we almost just gave up after that. Mm-hmm. But then came this, uh, my interest in the American Girl uh, right. books yeah. for kids and stuff. And um, and those books, I thought, were such good little morality tales for mm-hmm. girls. And so I wrote a letter to the head of the company, Pleasant Roland, and said, uh, I want to make a Broadway show out of this. And I gave her a one-page synopsis. Well, it turns out she had seen I'm Getting My Act Together in Chicago and had led a standing ovation. So she immediately called me up. I flew out there, and she said, I won't give you the rights to do a Broadway show, but I will commission you to write a show, and I will build a theater for it in Chicago, which she did do. That is amazing. And so, of course, Nancy was the perfect person to write the score for those things um, because... The characters of the American Girls are from all different eras, and Nancy has this incredible ability to evoke mm-hmm. the music of different eras, mm-hmm. and so she was the perfect person to write the music for that. And uh, so, even though we had kind of felt like giving up after the Eleanor thing at Williamstown, because again, we hadn't wanted any reviewers, but a reviewer from Variety came and totally panned it and uh, hated the whole idea that we would even write a musical about Eleanor Roosevelt. So, um, we were very discouraged at that point. But then the American Girl Project popped up and uh, that's got us back yeah. on yeah. track. And you did Anne of Green Gables? Yeah, yeah. for, for yeah. theater yeah. works. And that was, again, you yes, went to Lucille Lortel. It was done yes, there, wasn't it? Yes, we did. It? We did. Talk about yeah. Full yeah. <laughs> yeah. And that's a really good show, too, and I wish that had gotten big, picked up for a, a, a bigger life. Right, right. When, when you and Nancy were first starting out, there weren't many, if any at all, female composer lyricist teams there weren't any were you were you faced with any sort of male chauvinism or sexism going we did not we did not experience that we didn't think that that was happening at all um i remember early on uh, some people thought advised us that we should write children's musicals. Mm. Now, I think that that was because women should write children. And eventually we did write the American Girl shows. Um, But we didn't feel, we did not feel that there was any male chauvinism going on. However, as time has gone on, I think that clearly the fact that we were not ever in the network of you know what they call the old boys club yes. and, you know and and at that time the broadway yes there were some women carolyn lee was writing lyrics but and now there are a few women teams oh, yeah. but not a lot i mean but there are now but back then it really was a male world and i think that i don't know i think the fact that everything costs so much now that for anybody to take a chance on a female team that's only written stuff for off-Broadway, mm-hmm, yeah. nobody has any confidence that we could write a, a Broadway hit that could make money. Right. Yeah. You know. So, uh, 
so I wouldn't call that male chauvinism. It's more just not being in the network, not um, not being best buddies with yeah. the guys who produce shows and so forth. Yeah. And now we've written a sequel to I'm Getting My Act Together. It's still getting your yes. act together. Yes. Yeah. And uh, it's really good and it's really funny. And um, I got this great idea and called up Lynn Meadow and I said, oh, yeah. Lynn, I think we should do Still Getting My Act Together, uh, but we should find a star because I'm not a star. And it seems like these days you have mm-hmm. to have a star. Yeah. But I will understudy the star and play the Wednesday afternoons and Saturday afternoons for all the older people who saw me originate yeah. their role 35 years ago. I love that. Okay, Lynn left that idea. Yeah. And so we did it for Bernadette because I thought, okay, let's get Bernadette to yeah. do it. And we did it at the Manhattan Theater Club about a few months ago. Wonderful audience. It was really a smashing success. Bernadette seemed to like it, but didn't want to do it. Huh. So... We're looking for some other star okay. um, that would do it. And I think I like the idea of understudying yeah. uh, the star. Yeah. Uh, I think it would be a fun PR thing. Yeah, we want to see you perform <laughs> again. Yes. Yeah. yeah, yeah. You know, that's, oh, well, yeah. I, I, I would love to see that. I would love to see the Eleanor mm-hmm. uh, show come to fruition. Uh, mm-hmm. We'll certainly put that into the ether because it, your work is so special and we need to see more of it. Yeah. yeah. The Eleanor show is really good. Yeah. It's so good. Uh, have you and Nancy ever thought about doing a review of all your songs from all the different shows that you've worked on? No, but Lynn Meadow thought of doing that years ago, and that's what Hang On to the Good Times was Mm -hmm. at the Manhattan Theater Club way back in the 80s. I think it was 86 or 87, sometime in there. Um, And it was a review. Yeah. And at that point, oh, I think Don Scardino was in the review. Yes, yeah, yeah. All the people who were wonderful people who were in it. And it got panned because they said, they are not... Stephen Sondheim, they are not Fats Waller, or they are not, right. you know, well, and indeed we weren't. So uh, they thought, right. why are you doing a review of their work? Right. They are not Fats Waller, or they are not Stephen Sondheim. So that didn't okay. do anything. Well, maybe it's time to revisit I it. I think so. Because I disagree. <laughs> I do, too. I disagree. There should be a review out there. <laughs> exactly. Which can be now augmented with all the stuff that you've written since. Yeah. yeah. This has been so much fun. We, yeah. we are so honored that you've spent some time with us today. And we just wanted to thank you for all the amazing work that you've created over the past years. And it's, it's inspirational to all of us. It is. Yeah. Really thank special. You. Thank you. Yeah, yeah thank oh, you. It's fun talking to you guys. Oh, yeah, we had we've, had such a, we've had such a good time. Yeah. Uh, make sure to listen to all of uh, Nancy and Gretchen's stuff, and yes, we'll, we'll post links and everything. But a lot of it is on Apple Music and yep, Spotify. Spotify. Yeah. You can buy the records. Uh, Shelter is really hard to find. I found it on yeah, Amazon for $130. But what? we interviewed Joanna Merlin. Uh, 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 she was one of our first guests. And I saw the seed, like a, like a like someone had burned a CD. And I said, oh, my gosh, Joanna, I, I loved it. She said, here you go. You can listen to it. Oh my it. gosh. So I couldn't believe that I have a, a, it on. But There was never a, a formal. Uh, no, I don't think uh, so. I think it's like a demo or something It was a like demo. Yeah. It was a demo. But I yeah. love listening to it. Yeah, <laughs> really? Did yeah. you record it at 54? Did you record the audio? 
No, mm. we did. Oh, we we did, but it wasn't a it wasn't a good balance because we only we, the yeah. people were on mics. Mm. Yeah. Uh, but the instruments, uh, it it's wasn't, hard. It's, it's hard. hard. It's hard. No, yeah. I totally. Yeah. Yeah. So we weren't we weren't that. set up. Yeah. To do a of recording. Of course, of course, of course. But I would love to do. I I want that show to. Yeah. Shelter. <laughs> to, it's know. a good one. It's a real mm-hmm. little good one. Um, so you can listen to all of those. Yes. And then we'll just take a, we'll wait for the review of their work and you can come see that. Indeed. <laughs> all right. Thank you again. Christian. Thank you. Thank you so much. Bye, next everybody. Time. Bye. Bye. Today's episode was recorded at Shetler Studios on 244 West 54th Street. Visit Shetler Studios to book your room today and you could be as cool as us. That's S-H-E-T-L-E-R studios.com. And a big thanks to our sound editor, Daniel Schwartzberg, and social media manager, Bethany Ann Selecki. And friends, don't forget, we want more folks to hear these incredible stories and that's where you guys can come in and help us out. Yes, in order for people to find out about us, we need lots of ratings on iTunes. The more ratings, the more they'll come up in searches. So head on over to iTunes, search for Behind the Curtain, in Broadway's Living Legends, click on our logo, click on ratings and reviews, then write a review and leave us five stars and make us feel as special as Eliza Doolittle on Eliza Doolittle Day. Or you can leave us one star and make us feel as bad as Annie did in that weird production in Boston where Annie dreamed about being adopted and then ended the show back in the orphanage. True story, Rob was there. I saw it. So head on over to iTunes and make us feel even more special than we already do. Hi, y'all. This is Kristen Chenoweth. Hi, I'm Gloria Stefan. This is Sarah Bareilles. Hi, I'm Patty Gapone. This is Lin-Manuel Miranda. You're listening to the Broadway Podcast Network. Hello, it is Ryan, and we could all use an extra bright spot in our day, couldn't we? Just to make up for things like sitting in traffic, doing the dishes, counting your steps, you know, all the mundane stuff. That is why I'm such a big fan of Chumba Casino. Chumba Casino has all your favorite social casino-style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere with daily bonuses. That should brighten your day a little. Actually, a lot. So sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. That's ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. BGW. Void. We're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus.